Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Rowing That podcast. Today, we have a very special event. I'm Rebecca Caro, and I'm the host of the Rowing Chat podcast and the Rowing Chat Network, which is where you can get a lot of different podcasts all about the sport of rowing. But as I said, today is special. We are doing a joint broadcast with Canoe Racing New Zealand, and I'm actually here in the North Shore Canoe Club with wonderful pictures behind me, which you can see of all sorts of Olympians who have come from this club and gone all the way to the top of their sport. because. The wonderful head coach here, Gavin Elmger, invited me to have a little chat about a very special person here in New Zealand who's doing really interesting research into women and their sporting performance. And as he started telling me about her, I said to him, I know who you're talking about because I independently contacted her to see if she'd come on the Rowing Chat podcast. And he went, wow. So we decided to try and do a joint event. So I'm actually here with a live audience. You can all cheer now, <laughs> just to prove that there really are people here. And of course, we've got people watching live through YouTube and Facebook on the global interwebs. If you're watching and you want to ask questions, please put them in the text chat below the live stream, and we will be doing questions afterwards as well. But before we get on to that, let's actually introduce our guest, Dr. Stacey Sims. Welcome to your very first rowing chat. Hi, thanks. I'm like, I live in New Zealand, but I'm not from New Zealand. Across the board, that's right. Would you like to just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your personal development as an athlete and also your professional development and your interest in women in sport? Yeah, I think they kind of um, kind of roll together because I actually was a rower at university and that's kind of where it all started because um, back in the day we had lightweight boats, both men and women, and of course heavyweights. And the women and men were training very similarly and it would get to a point where the men would just seem to fly and pick it up and peak properly for races. But there were times in the boat where the women were flat and we didn't quite adapt well enough, didn't quite get to where the men were. And we were trying to figure out what was going on. It was at the same time where I was in undergrad in metabolism and ex-phys. And all the labs that we had, um, the results were always geared towards men. And me being an athlete, I always volunteered. And I remember there was one distinct lab where we had to run on a treadmill for two hours to see what happened. And one week I was in the low hormone phase of my menstrual cycle. And the next week I was in the high hormone phase. And my results were vastly different. So when I brought this up, uh, they said, oh, well, women are anomaly. And we just kind of put them in a, you know, we don't really study women that much or we know that they're anomalies, so we don't necessarily include the results. And I was like, wait a second, wait, I'm a woman and these are my results and I don't really agree with that. And then I started really digging in all of it and realizing that, yeah, most of the sports science research that we have are done on men, generalized to women, or you are grouped into the same category as men, even if you are in the, in the trial and it's not really viable. So when I started learning about that and how there weren't women, that kind of drove my academic career. And I progressed from rowing into professional bike racing and uh, other endurance sports, and it was the same. 
So when I really started understanding my body and my teammates and trying to push forward some of the stuff that was coming out, started seeing vast improvements. I've been saying this for over 20 years, and now it's and just in the past four or five years that everyone else is picking up the traction. Um, yeah, I've written a book on it, got another one coming out. We have um, you know, like I have a, a vast amount of research coming out, PhD students. So hand in industry, hand in academia, really trying to push the paradigm, change the way people are thinking. Um, and it's it's difficult, but we're starting to get traction. And as you say on your website, women are not small men. No, we are not small men as much as people like to think we are. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now, what we've got tonight for the rest of the session is Stacey has some slides which she's going to talk us through. And then afterwards, we will take individual questions from the floor and from watchers online. So if you think of a question while she's talking and you're watching on YouTube, hello to everybody. I can see you all clocking up there. Brilliant to have a live audience in, in the room as well as online. Please just type your question in the comments below the live stream. And now without further ado, I'm going to hopefully flick over to Stacey's slides and leave her to talk us through myths and generalizations. Yeah, as I said, um, most of the sports science and sports medicine research we know is uh, primarily based on male data. So there are a lot of myths and generalizations I kind of want to cut through. And this is just a high touch overview of a lot of things. We could spend hours digging into a lot, um, but I hopefully will get enough through that people start asking questions and take ownership of their own physiology and start to kind of biohack themselves. So we start really with the history. When we look at this one picture of Kathleen Switzer on the Boston Marathon, she was being pulled off because women weren't allowed to run. Like if we look at the history of women in sport itself, it's a relatively young acceptance and women still aren't really progressively accepted if you're looking at gender um, inequality and in pay uh, opportunities a lot of the funding aspects that come out just with development programs and sport it often is the women's side of things that get shut down even uh, at advertisements on tv how much airtime women's sports get versus men so there's a whole cadre of history behind women in sport that keeps perpetuating myths so if we think about like basically where does this stem from a scientific aspect? Because I am a scientist, I'm a physiologist, I'm a nutrition scientist, and I'm very interested in looking at how exercise perturbs the body and how we adapt to it. And what's the best method for training and adapting to this? So we know that the majority of exercise physiology has been exclusively performed on men. And it wasn't until the eighties that uh, people really started talking about doing specific sports science research with the upsurgence of marathoning. And then they're like, well, you know, we have men. It's easy to study men there. And women are, are very much the same. So what applies to men applies to women. But this is how most of the training, nutrition and recovery strategies that we use and employ now um, came to be. And we know that there are sex differences from birth, from a beta oxidation, enzymes and, and muscle activity. We also know that um, women have different fuel metabolism during exercise, but it's all generally washed out. 
And when we really think about why, why is this happening? I've already talked about the history of women and we have just the general societal marginalization where women tend to be put in a box. It even happens now. When we think about across the board, how women still have these stereotypical roles, even in the language that we're using, um, things like girl push-up. What is a girl push-up? It's a push-up modification, but it's so often used. Throwing like a girl, what does that mean? It has, has no real bearing on, on what the meaning is, but it's the language that is endemic in how we are training and talking and expressing women in sport. And we also have the aggression and how sport originated. And women were not perceived as being aggressive. So they weren't really put into sport. And thus all the uh, challenges that women have faced to get into sport has been trying to push the dogma to be encompassed into this male society. And a lot of the things that women do and said and, and still do represent that male lens. But one of the biggest factors that we need to consider are female sex hormones. Now, we know that we have hormone fluctuations during a normal menstrual cycle, and this starts at puberty. And so there's a large amount of time that a woman spends with hormone fluctuations. This is just a picture of a typical 28-day menstrual cycle, where we have around 14 days of relatively low estrogen, and progesterone, then estrogen surges right before ovulation. After ovulation, progesterone rises, estrogen rises, then they drop and your period starts. So this is typical of what a natural cycle looks like. Then when you look at what happens when a woman takes an oral contraceptive pill, it changes the profile yet again. So then we have these peaks and valleys on a 24 hour basis across the three weeks of active pills. And then you have a withdrawal bleed when you're taking the inactive or the sugar pill, but that's not a true period. It's just the withdrawal of these elevated hormones. And then when we look at what happens as we get into our mid forties, our fifties, we see that we have estrogen progesterone that goes all over the place. This is called perimenopause where women become more estrogen dominant and then they lose their period and they flatline. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because these hormones affect every system of the body. And like I said, it starts at puberty. So, you know, when you look at what's happening to girls who are around 10 or 11 years old and they start getting their early signs of development, they start becoming more, uh, I guess, not so apt at running or throwing or rowing. And you're seeing that these body changes are happening. But then when you look at what's happening with men, the boys are leaning up, they're getting stronger, they're getting fitter, they're getting faster. And then to top it all off with the girls is their body composition is changing. They're putting on body fat and they get their period. So we know that there's a lot of biological, psychosocial and emotional aspects that happen. And a lot of the times we look at young girls who start their period, it's very irregular and this is normal. But one of the answers is to put a woman or a girl on an oral contraceptive pill. It's very endemic, rather, you know, periods are regular, skin isn't quite right, emotionality. And all of these are a representation of the estrogen progesterone perturbations, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be put on an OC. 
We also see the general changes of anxiety and depression, sensitivity mood versus the anger and aggression that happen in boys. So again, these general changes at the onset of puberty also promote these sex differences that we see across the board in sport and sport performance. The specific concerns really for a young female athlete is that with the epigenetic exposure of estrogen progesterone, you end up with a widening of the pelvis and that translates into a different Q angle. So that's the angle from the hip to the knee. And how that affects us is we have a decline in speed and power when we're running. We have to look about where we put our feet for things like squats. We have to think about knee instability and landing mechanics, running mechanics, rowing mechanics. We also know that there's a changeover in the center of gravity. And often there's a dropout of, of girls in sport around this time because they say, oh, well, I can't perform very well. I got my period. This means I have to stop. My body's changing. But it's a temporary decline in coordination and balance. We have to remember to tell our girls it's a temporary decline over the course of about a year. And during this time frame, we want to relearn how to throw relearn how to land, how to run, how to row, and to focus on technique and drills to encompass that functional strength with this new uh, wider hip angle, as well as a wider sh shoulder girdle in order to get proper biomechanics and functional strength. But yet this is not discussed or really talked about when we're talking about young girls and developmental sport or the transition from club sport into more focused uh, high school and, and other competitive sports. So then we get into premenopause, the natural menstrual cycle. So when we talk about premenopause, this is when periods are regular. So it usually happens around age 16 or 17 if a girl starts her period around 13. And we talk about the normal phases, which I've already discussed, where the follicular phase is day one to ovulation, the low hormone phase. And this is where we are most like men. Our body temperature is low, our hormones are low. We don't have um, estrogen that's perturbing our neurotransmitters. So we have our mojo, so to speak. We can push hard, we can feel empathy, we can feel aggression, we have more control over our emotions. Um, due to the lack of that blood-brain crossing of our hormones. And when we get around to ovulation, we have the surge of estrogen that also is matched with the peak of testosterone. So around ovulation, women can be, can be and feel bulletproof. So this would be a time to take on heavy training loads around that time of ovulation. And understanding how you feel around that can also dial in your training. Then we get into the high hormone phase or the luteal phase, and this is ovulation to the onset of your period again, where estrogen and progesterone are rising, and this is where we are least like men, where we have a lot of metabolic shifts, we have fluid shifts, we have neurotransmitter changes, and this can affect not only how we feel about our bodies, how we move, how we respond to training, but also things like how our uh, performance might be measured. And again, I bring up the question of, so what? Why am I talking about these hormones so much? Because we know directly that female sex hormones affect body water regulation, so fluid shifts, exercise capacity. In the high hormone phase, you have a blunt, blunting of your anaerobic capacity. We also know that there's fuel shifts 
across the phases, where in the low hormone phase, you can readily access carbohydrate. But as you get into the high hormone phase, there's a shift where your body relies more on free fatty acids, but also breaks down muscle tissue easily because building that endometrial lining that's happening right before your period is very energy hungry. So progesterone breaks down a lot of tissue to be used as recycled uh, products for building this other tissue within the uterus. And it uh, impacts recovery, impacts thyroid, impacts uh, your core temperature. You also have different stress responses to cortisol. Estrogen directly affects serotonin. And again, progesterone breaks down muscle tissues so you have a difference in muscle protein synthesis. So um, I'm sure that these slides will be sent out. So I put a little bit more uh, details on these with estradiol or E2, specifically what they do for the more science-oriented individuals out there. So things like fluid retention by the action on the kidneys, altering carbohydrate metabolism, increasing clotting factors. Estrogen by itself in isolation is anabolic. So this is another uh, area around that ovulation surge where you can take advantage of heavy training and recover well. We also know that natural estrogen, not a oral contraceptive pill or exogenous estrogen, natural estrogen is very uh, essential for bone formation. It stimulates the insulin growth factor one that is necessary for bone formation. So progesterone counters estrogen and it's thermogenic, but it also competes with what we call aldosterone receptor sites. So it changes your thirst sensation. It changes fluid. Um, within the blood and pushes it out more into uh, tissue spaces. It increases the breakdown of your lean mass. It increases your respiration rate um, and it alters sweat thresholds, meaning that you'll vasodilate or you'll get hotter for a longer period of time before you start sweating. But then your sweat rate is higher when you have a high in the luteal high hormone phase. So then when we talk about oral contraceptive pills, we know that oral contraceptive pills downregulate down all your natural hormones and they're experimental in their own right. So this is another factor that comes into play when we're looking at science. If it's difficult enough to do a research project in and around these perturbations of natural cycles, then often people default to women who are on an oral contraceptive pill because it gives you three weeks of a stable platform and then one week of a washout where people say, oh, well, you know, it's still low hormone, but it's not. You still have a rebound effect of estrogen progesterone that can come up in that, in that withdrawal week and be another high hormone week. So when we talk about hormonal contraceptions, I just want to focus really on the OCP or the oral contraceptive pill, where we have three weeks of that stable hormone and then one week of your sugar pill. And the thing about oral contraceptive pills is that you have a difference in what we call the hydroxyl group. So on the left side, you have estradiol, which is your natural hormone. And then on the right side, you have two different forms of synthetic estradiol. And these differences in these hydroxyl groups is what creates a different response within the body. And it's the same with progesterone. So we see progesterone on the left side and then the synthetic progestin on the right side. These are also have different hydroxyl groups and again, affect the systems of the body differently. They can have weak androgenic and estrogenic activity, or they can have no estrogenic activity. So understanding 
what kind of formulation of pill a woman is on can also help you understand what's going on within the body systems. We look specifically at hormonal contraception effects on exercise and performance. We know that the combined oral HC decreases your VO2 peak, decreases your cardiac output, decreases peak power, reduces your ability to adapt to anaerobic, um, anaerobic activity. It decreases IGF-1, which again impacts bone formation. And we also know that OC is associated with increased oxidative stress and inflammation, which reduces your body's ability to adapt. And then, as I was saying, specific to the formulation, if there's high progestin activity, you have a decrease in the way that your body responds to strength training to reduce protein synthesis. The flip side of that is if you have an OC that's a 30 microgram rather than a 20 microgram dose, you'll increase your overall muscle mass through strength training, but not functional strength. So the side effect of that 30 microgram of, of, of estrogen in that oral contraceptive pill is you'll gain body mass and muscle mass, but not strength. There's no improvement in strength. And these, again, are things that are not discussed. The next really big topic I want to bring in are intermittent fasting and ketogenic diet trends because they tend to be all the rage. I want to really start on the intermittent fasting aspect where we look at these various methods where you have a 12-hour, 16-hour alternate day or warrior, which is a 20-hour. The issue with intermittent fasting with athletes is that you're already on the tipping point of not getting in enough calories. Then when you start adding intermittent fasting and you can fall into fasted workouts or you can fall into big times during the day where you're not eating, you perturb what we call kispeptin. Now kispeptin is a very critical, uh, I guess, neuropeptide modulator, meaning that it's sensitive to calories and nutrients within the body. And in women, it is more sensitive than men. So in an aspect of training low calorie, training low nutrients, this kispeptin is downregulated or downturned, which then signals the body to stop producing your sex hormones. So it is the first step to amenorrhea. The other aspect about intermittent fasting is we hear about this great focus that happens, and it happens in men. You get a, a dial up of the parasympathetic action in men. But in women, with the kispeptin perturbance and the low calorie, you get an increase in the sympathetic drive because the body is like, wait a second, I need calories because I need to reproduce. There are no calories. I need to start conserving and I need to be on alert for the fact that there are low calories. So you have this increased sympathetic drive. We end up with more anxiety. We end up with uh, poor sleep. And if we aren't getting enough good sleep, then again, we don't recover, we don't adapt, we don't repair. There's no improvement in glucose control for women. The autophagy that a lot of uh, reports come out saying are fantastic for improving telomere length and improving longevity is very minimal in women. And the biggest thing is it increases that visceral active abdominal fat in women, even if you are an athlete. Then when we look specifically at what's happening within a 24 hour day. We know that it isn't the calorie intake in that 24 hours that counts as much 
as how you are eating around your training. As I said, intermittent fasting can predispose women to getting into unintentional calorie deficit. But if you're not fueling for what you are doing, you stay in this breakdown state after exercise. And even if you're eating enough during the day, if you stay in that longer term breakdown state after exercise, it perturbs kisspeptin, creates this catabolic or breakdown state, and your body starts to downregulate. Your resting metabolic rate starts to go down, thyroid starts to go down, start putting on abdominal fat. You start looking um, to your periods for kind of that reassurance things are okay, and you start getting your regular periods or they might stop. And it all has to do with that inherent biological aspect of women having a greater sensitivity of calorie needs and nutrient needs than men. So then when we get to the ketogenic diet that's really hot, we think about what the original population is. We know that it's male who were obese or diabetics who needed to lose weight quickly in the hospital. And now it's really hot in endurance performance. And we hear about the low carb, high fat diet, ketogenic diet. And the goal is to increase quote, mental deficiency or improve our reliance on fatty acid oxidation, sparing carbohydrate. We look specifically at all the ketogenic diets and performance. All of the studies that are out there are all on male participants, except for one that came out last month by Louise Burke, who showed that her female participants under low carb, high fat had a decrement in performance and ended up with a downturn of resting metabolic rate. So again, we hear all these beneficial things about the ketogenic diet, and it's based on male data. We look at women, the outcomes of ketogenic diet for women, you have that kisspeptin sensitivity, so down-regulates kisspeptin, increasing cortisol, you have a decrease in progesterone, you have estrogen dominance, all of these are signs of stress to the body. Thyroid suppression, impaired glucose, glucose tolerance, increased fat gain, in particular around the abdominal region. And the other driving factor about this is the reason why the keto diet and the low carb, high fat has got so much press in sport is for increasing the body's ability to burn fat during exercise or become quote metabolically efficient. But women are already there due to the fact that there are sex differences within beta oxidation uh, proteins in the mitochondria. So that means your muscles are already predisposed to being able to use and burn more fatty acids. And estrogen in itself increases the body's ability to use free fatty acids and spare carbohydrate. So the things that women are trying to achieve through a ketogenic diet are already inherently there through our physiology. So I always say your period is an ergogenic aid. And I say this in the context of women who are naturally cycling and they lose their period. I don't say this in the context of women who are on an oral contraceptive pill or other hormonal contraception or are, have some other issue where they're not having their periods. If you are a naturally cycling woman and you lose your period, this is a sign that there is endocrine dysfunction. Because we know that common menstrual dysfunction in active women comes from anovulatory cycles, meaning that you might have a shortened period but that you didn't ovulate, so you don't produce progesterone. So you end up just shedding a bit of the lining, but you're not actually having a true period. 
The biggest thing that we worry about is amenorrhea. So primarily secondary amenorrhea, meaning that you've had your period and then you've lost it due to high volumes of training stress, life stress, uh, a misstep in your nutrition. And these are things to really be concerned about. As we often hear in the sporting culture, I lost my period, I must be fit enough. And that is not true. When you lose your period, it's a sign that you are not a healthy athlete and we need to work to get it back. And it primarily has to do with energy availability. As I said, women are more sensitive to calorie misstep and nutrient misstep. And energy availability, and in particular, low energy availability, has to do with not getting enough fuel in to meet your daily needs of just existing, plus the physical activity that comes into play. When we drop below a certain level, usually identified as 30 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass per day, this is where you start to have that suppression of your thyroid, your luteinizing hormone, your estrogen, testosterone. You end up with bones, um, suppression of bone formation, which leads to low bone mineral density. We also know that only four days of LEA starts the onset of that thyroid dysfunction that downturns your resting met metabolic rate. Now, the reason why I focus on the resting metabolic rate is it's really, really difficult to bring it up. Uh, once it's lowered. And when we're thinking about what is the resting metabolic rate, that's really how much energy your body needs to exist. And when you have a downturn, you don't need as many calories. So you're always fighting this whole aspect of being cold and trying to eat to bring it up and it's not working. So we also look at a thing called subclinical low energy availability. And most of the recreational active women in New Zealand rest in the subclinical aspect. It can be intentional, it might not be, but we do know that over 50% of recreational female athletes in New Zealand suffer from subclinical and or full on low energy availability. And it's like beating yourself against the wall where you're not adapting, your body composition isn't changing the way you want it to be. You're getting increase in your fatigue. You are not being able to hit the metrics that you want. So you stagnate in your training and you stagnate in your performance. And unfortunately, often the uh, response to that is to train harder and eat less, which again perpetuates this low energy problem. So one of the issues that we really talk about with low energy availability is it's a step to relative energy deficiency in sport. And I'm gonna skip ahead. So I want to bring up why unintentional and intentional low energy availability is so important to understand and identify. And it has to do with performance. And that's basically what we're worried about when we're in that elite compound of, of high performance sport. So as I said, when you start to have that misstep between nutrition and training, you tend to downregulate your thyroid and you also downregulate that IGF-1, which I've mentioned before. So you suffer bone mineral density and you also suffer your resting metabolic rate. When we look at performance, this is on some swimmers who had unintentional LEA, where we look at those women who were naturally cycling versus those who were ovarian suppressed or had uh, amenorrhea. 
And those women who uh, had amenorrhea, even over a 12-week block of training, did not adapt to the training. Instead of getting faster, they got slower. Instead of leaning up, they put on body fat. So this is a very important first low-hanging fruit to identify when we're trying to keep healthy and adapt to our training. I'm going to shift gears a little bit, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a challenge. And we think about training and the dogma and the typical periodization training block, right? So it stems from our general adaptation syndrome, or GAS. And this came about in the 1930s, and we're looking at stress resistance, especially when we had a world war going on. And we understand from Hans Selye that you have a stress that occurs and your body responds to that and becomes resistant to it for about two weeks. And then after that high level of resistance, by about week four, your body's like, yep, I got to rest. So your reserves are depleted. The body needs to recover. And when we think about a typical training program, the basic idea of periodization stems from this. But it was from the 1950s on Russian Olympic powerlifting where they are trying to understand how they can get the most out of their athletes. But if we bring it in today and we look at it from a menstrual cycle perspective, we see that it looks and works really well over a 28-day natural menstrual cycle. Well, we know in the follicular phase, your body can handle a lot of stress. It can adapt well. Right after ovulation, some steady state work, you can get really good adaptation there. And then you have a deload week, which coincides with that last bit of the high hormone phase. Sweet, works great. But some women have a 21 day cycle. So you miss out if you have a follicular phase, then luteal phase, and it's a shortened cycle, then you'll hit some of the top end parts of your training in the part of your physiology that is somewhat compromised for being able to adapt to high intensity. And then in that week four, where your body's like, yeah, bring on the stress. You're in the follicular phase. You're in your deload week of your training program. Then when we think about some women end up having 40-day cycles, and this is the maximum number we say that is somewhat normal. And we know that female athletes fluctuate between 23 and 40 days, depending on stress. And if we look at that typical four-week cycle, then we lose a lot of our ability to push the envelope with our physiology to hit that high intensity. And um, because we start with that four weeks where we have the stress occurs, follicular phase keeps extending in this 40-day cycle, but we miss out. And then we start our next high intensity bit right when the luteal phase starts. And we've looked at this specifically in strength and power. Um, we call it phase training. It's a bit easier to do specific phase-based and cycle-based training when you're looking at strength and power because there are less variables that affect um, the outcomes. So the research here is relatively new, and the research in the cardiovascular space still needs to catch up. But we do know that from the research that's looking at follicular-based training. You increase your cross-sectional area of your muscle, your strength, your lean mass. Um, if you are looking at doing your high-load training in the low-hormone 
follicular phase and having that deload in the last five to seven days before your period starts. When we look at um, from a cardiovascular aspect, we know that you can push that high intensity interval training work and that heavy resistance training in that follicular phase and around ovulation and then deloading and focusing on form and technique in the luteal phase or those five to seven days before your period starts works fantastically well at pushing that top end adaptation that we often miss out as women. So the novel concept that's coming around is working with the menstrual cycle. Now when I talk about working with the menstrual cycle and working uh, around your own physiology, I'm not talking about one point in time that is taking a performance marker at ovulation or a performance marker at day 23, which is what some of the systematic reviews are coming out and saying that there's no performance difference. Performance is one point in time. What we're looking at now and what the research is coming out now is looking at the training factors of maximizing our training loads at the point in our body and the point in our physiology where our body can handle that stress and recover from it instead of stressing the body harder at the time where it should be deloading. So the best thing to do is to start with tracking because again, your period is an ergogenic aid. And there are quite a few different tracking apps out there. The one that I like the best and full disclosure, I am involved in, and it could be why I like the best because I've been able to put a lot of input into the science behind this. It's an artificially intelligent driven app where every time you input your own data, it learns from what you are saying. So the app becomes a direct reflection of where you are in your cycle, how you're responding to training and how you feel. So after about three or four months of giving more and more data to the app, it'll come back and say, hey, in three days time, you usually feel really flat consider what kind of training you're doing. When we're looking from a performance perspective and we're looking at the fact that we can't change races around our period, because we notice that three days in three days time, you usually feel flat, but you've scheduled a race. So try these specific interventions to level the playing field. It's a 3D application to be able to work with the female athlete and to work with her physiology to find the nuances to enable her to train and perform at her best. So I'm going to leave you there with a few questions. Basically, all the stuff that we've learned so far across the years in sport, coaching, nutrition, it's all viewed through that male lens. And hopefully I've given you a little bit of an insight to start thinking outside that box and taking your view away from that patriarchal uh, paradigm and push the dogma and understand that you as a female athlete have an ergogenic possibility based in your own physiology. So if you are empowered to track your cycle or track your training and mood around your cycle, you're going to see insights and get data to improve your training and your performance. So we think about it, if you have less injury, less illness, you have more performance potential. So when we talk about it, this is why I say women are not small men, because we inherently have this physiological advantage. And now that there's more and more research coming out and we understand it, it's time for us to start harnessing it and using it. 
So I'll say thank you. Well, thank you as well, Stacey. That was a gallop. And I'm definitely finding that my school chemistry is well out of the requirements for what I need to understand. <laughs> now, I'm going to take the lead and kick off with a question from Eddie Berg, who's watching on YouTube. Eddie says, hi and thank you. It's very interesting. Do you know of similar research for peri and postmenopausal women? Yes, when we look at the perimenopausal state where we end up with more estrogen dominance and um, progesterone perturbations, we know that it's really the four years before uh, menopause actually hits where you have the biggest affect to change. I mean, this is where your body composition changes the most. But the thing about estrogen progesterone and the way it affects every system of the body, there's lots of epigenetic changes that happen where you have to really start dialing in your training and looking at reducing your long, slow distance work, putting an emphasis on heavy resistance training and high intensity work as well as plyometrics. Because if you're looking at what estrogen does and what progesterone does with regards to glucose control, uh, lean mass development, recovery, when those start to flatline or they start changing in ratios, you need an alternative stress. So the training has to change. And when you get into postmenopausal state, it's the same thing. You have to look at doing that higher intensity work and challenging the body because the body gets into this state of, I'm really good at long, slow distance work. And the longer you go, the slower you become, the slower you become, the more frustrated you become. So you have to put in those stressors that come from exercise and specific nutrition dosing to get what those hormones used to do for you. So just to clarify that, um, this research that you're, you're citing, so you're interpreting that into a training program. Um, can you remember where the research yeah, actually it, came um, from? There's a long list of it, and I have collated it all on our website. So it comes somewhat from master's athlete uh, research looking at the trends and when women start to slow down. We know that happens around age 55. And when you start overlaying that with peri and postmenopausal women and the adaptations that change from public health and um, health research, you really start understanding what happens with that epigenetic changeover when you drop estrogen and progesterone. Fantastic. Now, ladies and gents in the room, are there any questions from you? Um, you do lose your period due to training or life stress or trying to lose a bit of body weight, body fat, sorry, what is the best way to begin to fix this? So the question is, if you do lose your period due to stress or training, what is the best way to fix it? So um, this is a little bit of a difficult one because I sit on the whole aspect of health and performance. So as a female performance physiologist and expert, I look at it and say, we look at what your training load is, we back it down, and we really match your nutrition in around each training session to reduce the time that you're in a catabolic state. On the health factor, the main response is you stop doing everything, you eat more until your LH surge comes back and your periods come back. I've worked with high-performing athletes who cannot break their contract and need to keep 
moving and keep performing. So we found that if you are looking at the delta or the change between energy output and energy intake in and around training, it takes longer, but you can get your periods back, maintain some form of fitness to be able to perform. Go for it. We, we've, we've got a follow-up question, which is? Um, around the, what's the best um, timing of nutrition around training? Great. So let's dive in now. So you mentioned that the timing of nutrition around training is key to that recovery. What are the general guidelines around that timing? You don't do a fasted workout. So you have some kind of food before every workout. If the workout is longer than 90 minutes, you need to bring some fuel on board and post-exercise within 30 minutes. You're looking at getting a good 30 to 40 grams of protein. Um, and some carbohydrate because that protein whack helps with increasing amino acid circulation, increases leucine circulating. So not only does it help with muscle protein synthesis and dropping cortisol, it also uh, increases the amount of leucine that's circulating in the brain to stop central nervous system fatigue. So it really helps with total body recovery and stopping that breakdown state. Well, that's really clear. Now, we have another question from an online uh, watcher, Susan, who says, I'm curious about how the hormonal IUD might affect cycles and how I might adapt this. Yeah. So the good thing about a hormonal IUD is that women actually ovulate. So after about six months of the marina placement, you can start with BBT or basal body temperature tracking and get a specific BBT thermometer. And then you'll be able to see the inflection of your core temperature. And the next month or a few weeks later, get an over-the-counter ovulation predictor kit with your BBT. And then you can find out when you ovulate and be able to dial in your phases that way. Susan, I hope that answers your question. Now, any more questions from the floor? I have a question around the low energy availability. So if you're in that sort of low middle space and when you move up, you have more energy. Do you just eat anything? Like do you just eat more in general or anything in particular? Like what would you eat to get from that low state and you know the high state? So the question is around the low energy availability slide where you had the traffic light green, amber, red. What mm -hmm. do you do if you want to move from one of those states to another and project Guessing we're talking from the red or amber up to the green. Do you just eat anything or are there some very specific things that you can follow in order to improve your energy availability? Well, conscious of the fact you don't want to put on extra body fat, right? So we look at really fueling in and around all your training sessions because that's the biggest amount of time that you can bring food in and affect what's happening. And then sitting in a smaller snack in the afternoon. When I work with athletes and I see that they need to increase their calorie intake by a thousand calories a day, you know, it's really, you're going to get a lot of pushback if you say, yeah, you need to eat an extra thousand calories. So we look specifically how we can tweak it by increasing fueling before, putting a little bit more in during, definitely increasing um, the protein and some carbohydrate intake afterwards, and then putting in a smaller smoothie snack in the afternoon. And so that works with your body's rhythm. It doesn't make you overly full and it prevents that unwanted weight gain. How would someone identify if they are in that low energy availability state? Is it just you feel tired? 
Partially, but a lot of it is lack of adaptation. So you have a big training block and you have a recovery after that big training block and you're not any better. You have that deadened fatigue and you're not sleeping well. Um, you're starting to put on extra uh, belly fat and you're like, what's going on? I haven't really changed so much. But it's really just that flat line where you feel like you can never get above that 75% where you're just kind of hanging out there and you just don't understand and, and your training's not working for you. Your sleep is poor. You feel really tired, even though your iron says you're not, you don't have any iron deficiencies. Um, and unfortunately, you can't just go get a blood test for it. You have to look at the training load versus sleep metrics. And if you are in doubt, really just focus in and around your training, fueling well for what you are doing to help you just get out of that breakdown state and pull you up a little bit. See how you feel after doing that for a week. And that could give you a really good indication of are you in this LEA state or not? You mentioned your sleep there. What are the specific things that people can track with regards to sleep and recovery? Yeah, so one of the biggest things we're finding out is that if you eat within two hours of bed, then you significantly impact your REM sleep and your um, slow wave sleep. Now, REM is essential for uh, memory and cognition, and your slow wave is very essential for the physical reparation. So if we're looking at um, backing up our food before bed, so we have that two-hour window at least before we go to sleep, so that even if it is a shorter sleep, you are getting into that reparative sleep, looking at blue light filters and having really good sleep hygiene. And one of the ways that we uh, you know, can really see what's happening with sleep is say you go to bed at 10 and you wake up at seven every day, but some days you feel awful and some days you feel fantastic. It's not the amount of time that you have in sleep, it's the quality of sleep that's happening. You can use sleep trackers that are on like the Apple Watch or you can get an Aura Ring or a Whoop band and really dial into it if you want to be a data junkie. But the biggest way to impact sleep is to have really good sleep hygiene. It's so important. It goes across the board, not only for how you feel, but also, you know, weight control adaptations, um, you know, improving overall fitness, both physical and mental. So sleep, when in doubt, sleep. <laughs> It is it is the best free recovery for any athlete, is it not? It is, definitely, yes. Now, Danielle has put a question online and she asks, how does a plant-based diet affect hormone regulation for menstruating women and then into peri and post-menopause? I think the biggest issue with plant-based diets is not getting enough calories. We also know that if you have a high amount of fiber and low estrogen, then that fiber can also bind with the estrogen and drop that estrogen even further. Um, I often look at women who are on that low estrogen phase and we take out cruciferous vegetables. We take out the cabbage, we take out the broccoli and the cauliflower. Um, until we can get that estrogen level up. The flip side of that is women who uh, have estrogen dominance, we try to put more of that in to help control some of the estrogen metabolism. And when we're looking at peri and postmenopause, the plant-based diet from a research standpoint tends to be the best and the most efficacious with regards to helping with gut microbiome, helping with uh, vasomotor symptoms and menopausal symptoms, and also helps with um, weight control and blood glucose control. So from a plant-based diet aspect, it's a really good way to kind of keep your gut microbiome healthy and help control 
some of your hormone um, metabolism. Um, yeah, so from that question in itself, I think I'll stop there before I get any further. <laughs> I've got a question from myself. Um, imagine yeah. if you're a coach and you, what do you say to an athlete, a female athlete who says she's considering going on a keto diet? Uh, I look at, I've had this question and um, from some of my athletes and I often, first I start with why, why do you want to do this? Um, get their answer, try to understand what the drive is. And then if they sound really logical in their drive, I ask them, um, okay, well, if you really want to try it, we're going to do some biohacking and we're going to have you do it for two weeks and see performance just to see how it feels. Right. And then on top of that, I'll also pull out all the literature about how it is not appropriate for women because the basic concept of trying to do the ketogenic diet is to lose body fat and become more of a fat burner. And we know from the literature that it doesn't work for women. So you let them have a go for that two weeks. I'm a big believer in biohacking, right? Once you understand it for yourself and feel it, see the outcomes, it's really powerful. Another question, Gavin, you were? Yeah, um, how long does it take for a female athlete to get back to a natural cycle after she comes off an oral contraceptive pill? And what is the, how long is the side effects for that process to take? So the question is, how long does it take a female athlete who comes off an oral contraceptive pill? How long does it take to get back into a natural cycle? And then the second question is, and what are the side effects? So if she goes on an oral contraceptive pill just for contraception um, and didn't have any irregular periods prior to, so that she didn't get put on it for some kind of um, interesting health reason, then within three months, everything's normal. Like back to normal cycling, hormones are regulating, you can go into normal training. Um, a lot of women lose weight because of that estradiol effect being gone. So their natural estrogen comes into play. If a woman um, was put on it because they are amenorrheic and they get taken off it, the amenorrhea won't go away. You have to work to get it back. So that's your question. Any more? What if you're, um, so we talked about oral contraception. What if you're on the depot injection? Does that have an impact on, on, on your training? Obviously, you couldn't ask. Like, what, what would be the impact? So if you're on the depot injection rather than an oral mm -hmm. contraception, does that also have an impact on your training? So we know that the implantin, the implants and the depot, um, they have a least effect. It's more like being on a hormonal IUD because it's a, it's a small amount of progestin that's released and has the least systemic effect on training outcomes. Um, with regards to being able to do phase-based training uh, with the implantin, you can because you will end up ovulating. But with the depot, the research isn't there. We haven't really looked at what happens with female athletes. And um, so you can try to get some blood tests initially to see what your estradiol level is and then see what phase you fit in there and then start tracking BBT. There we go. Another one. I just a question about um, the athletes who choose to take plant protein over animal protein. And what is the question? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what's the difference between athletes who choose plant protein over animal protein? 
So the biggest concern about plant protein is the lack of leucine. So we know that leucine is very critical, not necessarily in isolation. We need all of the essential amino acids. But leucine is really critical for building muscle protein or, and also for crossing blood-brain barrier. And for women, we know that we need a higher level of leucine to trigger that mTOR process. We need a higher level of leucine to counter some of the neurotransmitter effect that estrogen has in able to, or in order for us not to be inundated with central nervous system fatigue. So if we're looking at plant-based foods, you have to be really sure to dial in your protein intake, knowing that 50 grams of soy is bio-identical to 25 grams of whey. So it becomes a volumetric thing. If you're looking at using plant-based protein powders, so far, there's been one on the market I found that actually adds fermented branched chain amino acids to boost that leucine content, and that's form out of the UK. Otherwise, you're looking at um, the different plant-based protein powders and adding your own um, BCAAs to it, preferably fermented, because then we know that it it comes from a plant source, not an animal source. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's getting big nods from the audience. Any more questions? If your period does change, if it extends or shortens, what phase is affected? Uh -huh. Aha. So if your period changes, it extends or it shortens, what phase is affected? Usually it's the follicular phase. So the follicular phase will be movable, the luteal phase not so much. There we go. Great, straightforward. So if you have a long cycle, a 40-day cycle, you have longer follicular phase, greater time to hit that intensity. Yeah, there we go. Go you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so what if the short, yours is a shortening situation, I'm guessing. So if it's a shortening situation, is it possible that that's a, an early symptom of amenorrhea? rather than not necessarily like i can look at i can look at the data of a team and i can pick out when they're traveling or under high training stress versus when they're at home and under and or under lower training stress because of the length of the cycle when it shortens if it drops below 23 days then most often it is anovulatory and that can be somewhat normal because most women have two to three anovulatory cycles a year if it becomes more of the norm where you start dropping below that 23, then go get a progestin blood test on day 21 to see if you are actually producing progesterone because that will give you insight on if you are ovulating or not. And that's a critical thing. If you're having too many anovulatory cycles, that's another sign for that amenorrhea. Brilliant, excellent. And we have another question from an online watcher, Crystal, who says, do you have any specific tips on how to adjust training sessions and fueling to your cycle phases? The brief overview is that in the follicular or low hormone phase, this is where you can hit that high intensity, you're lifting heavy, um, you recover really well, uh, you can get away with lower carbohydrate intake uh, because your body can access it very well, but keeping on top of that protein intake. Um, once you pass ovulation and get into that luteal phase or higher hormone phase, 
this is where you need to start looking at more tempo-based um, training right after ovulation. And then you look at um, what we call a deload or more technique-oriented stuff in the five to seven days before your period starts. Working technique under the bar in the gym, working running drills, cycling drills, rowing drills, really dialing in the technique without so much load so that you can hit it hard the next time you hit or the following week um, with that technique. In the luteal phase, you also have to supplement higher intensity activity with carbohydrate. We know that women who are doing like a time trial in the follicular versus the luteal phase, and they go in without any kind of supplementation, and they have had breakfast, that they will uh, perform way better in the low hormone phase um, than in the high hormone phase until they take on carbohydrate in that high hormone phase, and then it matches. So it's just giving your body a little bit of extra carbohydrate when it needs it. So what an easy fix, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's great. Hey, because don't I don't despair, want people, Yeah, because I don't want people to think that that there's a negative point in the cycle. The idea is to track and to understand. And then from a training perspective, you know how to dial in training. But you can also put specific interventions into play to level that hormone field so that performance in a race situation or a group training situation is not compromised. Yeah, which is great because we can all support each other, can't we? Yeah. We have time for one more question. Um, I was going to ask about um, like racing in terms of like you mentioned like, you know, if you know that you're going into like a high hormone phase, you're going to be feeling really, really low like interventions you can put in place, like in the days that leading up to a big competition, what, what would you do? So the question is, if you know that you're, you're going into a high hormone phase and you're coming into competition, what specific interventions do you recommend? This is where we look and see what are the issues. Are you having really significant PMS and bloating and negative thought and anxiety? Then we know that it's primarily an inflammation-driven factor. So this is where we start implementing things like omega-3 fatty acids um, and white willow bark or baby aspirin, a low-dose aspirin, to counter some of those receptor sites that are affected by estrogen and the cytokine response to progesterone. We also know that the body needs more magnesium and zinc when it's building tissue, plus your immune system. So we definitely boost magnesium and zinc in that week or so leading into a high stress performance aspect. Um, we look at uh, doing some sodium loading to increase body sodium, which will help with plasma volume expansion or putting more water in the blood for thermoregulation. We look at using branch chain amino acids um, before training to get that leucine up in the brain, which counters um, the anxiety and depression that, that estrogen can cause, but also counter central nervous system fatigue. So again, it's really understanding what are your symptoms and what do we need to mitigate before you get into that situation. So this is another reason why tracking and understanding how you respond can really identify what you need to use as an intervention. And of course, using the um, wish.ai app will help yes. to make those suggestions to you. Exactly. There we go. Get on that beast, girls. There you go. Stacey, it's been a delight. Thank you so much for a very fast paced gallop, but some fantastically <laughs> in depth information and your really specific answers to the questions that the audience of Pause has been absolutely brilliant. 
before you leave thanks us, for having me would you like to tell us a little bit about your book raw and where people can connect with you online um yeah so roar actually has been out since 2016 and it um has been translated from my big sciencey words by my beautiful co-author Celine yeager who writes uh for bicycling and has her own um, columns and is really good at understanding and translating it. So it's an easy to read layperson book that's based on science. Um, and it goes through all the phases of, you know, what is the menstrual cycle? What are the phases if you're pregnant, looking to get pregnant, post-pregnancy, perimenopause, menopause. So it covers all of those, including some biohacking. Um, you can get it at Paper Plus. You can get it online at Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, uh, Book Depository, um, even Whitcalls. There we go. Um, and then you can find me at drstacysims.com, also Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as Dr. Stacy Sims. And we post something different every day. That's very easy to find. Yeah. Oh, Stacy, one final question. Is it possible to get an audio version of your book in New Zealand? Because the Audible edition so far isn't available here. Oh, it should be. I have it. Let me look and I will let you know. Fantastic. We'll put the answer in the show notes when we get to it later. Perfect. It's been a delight having you with us on Rowing Chat. So to all of the listeners, we would love you to subscribe to the Rowing Chat podcast network. You know where to find podcast apps. And please make some suggestions of other guests that we might like to have. And Stacey, come back. Come and see us again. I will. Thanks. I've been Rebecca Caro, and you can catch the full show notes of this podcast at rowing.chat. And till next time, bye bye. <laughs>